Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. everyone and welcome to another episode of On The Turnbuckle here on mypodcasthouse.com or whatever you're listening to us on. Thank you for joining us. The music of the WCW Nitro show, the old Monday Night Nitro, bring us in to the show. That's because we'll be catching up very shortly with Guy Evans. Talk about him in just a tick. First of all, let me introduce my co-hosts, Walshy and Lyle. Hello, boys. Very good, eh, Tony? Nice to be back. Lovely to be back after a uh, a one week hiatus. Yeah, um, and I guess that other dingbat's here as well, is he? Oh uh, yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Oh uh, yeah. Lying on his bed as normal. Very comfortable. Very comfortable. That was uh, yeah, good to be back. That's for sure. Of course, um, last week we didn't do a show. Tony, you released a statement on behalf of on the turnbuckle about the the speaking out movement yep. and um, I don't think it's appropriate for three guys to talk about the movement in depth and in detail because, you know, we're, it's not really something that um, is affecting us on that deeply personal level and where we can really relate. But um, it was a good statement last week. I still encourage everyone to go out and, and get across the movement um, a lot of good to see PWA and MCW locally, and I think a few other companies will start to join them who are actually implementing new systems and new processes. So we wait to see what comes out there. But I have been speaking to both promotions, and they are genuine in these movements, which is really good. Yeah, it was tough. Oh, like you said. Three guys talk uh, speaking about it didn't seem well, it didn't sit right with any of us. So, uh, yeah, plenty of stories out there. Go out, educate yourself if you think you know you can better yourself. You know your friends, and yeah, let's hope for us personally. The local scene can police itself or govern itself to be better. Um, you know, because I don't want to be sitting in the crowd when wrestling does return and having any second thoughts that the product I'm watching is um, not doing everything they can to be inclusive and, you know, make it a safe environment for everyone. Yeah, and I think it's all coming to a, a good time for that to happen. The fact that everything is still shut down and people aren't really working at the moment. So it gives them an opportunity. It gives the, the, uh, the, the promoters the opportunity to work with the talent and as soon as they come back for that first show, we know that everyone's going to be on the same page and this is the way it moves forward. And uh, yeah, I think it's 
you know, we just wait and see how that all turns out. But I'm pretty confident that uh, it'll turn out well. Yeah, I mean, obviously, people are saying darkest day for wrestling. And I don't know, maybe it's the best. Like, the abuse obviously isn't. But what comes next may be the best thing that ever happens because it provides this inclusive and equal platform for everybody. All right, time to catch up with our special guest today. A couple of years ago, you might have heard of a book that came out called Nitro, The Incredible Rise and Inevitable Collapse of Ted Turner's WCW. Well, this guy's been so busy for the last two years talking to people about it that we've finally got on his list and we get a chance to chat now. Guy Evans joins us live from New York. G'day, Guy. How are you? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks so much for, uh, for the invite. I'm looking forward to speaking with you today. Uh, we're looking forward to having a chat to you. There's so many stories to talk about. What an interesting period in wrestling it was. First of all, uh, how has the book gone the last couple of years? Oh, my God. That's, you know, that's a question that I could probably spend about an hour answering because it's it's really been amazing to see the response to this book. As you mentioned, it's been a couple of years now since it, it first came out. And um, it just never ceases to amaze me the momentum that this book seems to have. You know, just when you think that it's died down for a second, someone else will talk about it on a podcast or, or mention it online. And it seems like that creates a whole new wave of interest behind it. So I've probably done more interviews for the book in the last month or two than I did in the first month or two after it came out. Um, you know, it's just when I, when I think about what's happened in these last couple of years, um, it's fast past any expectations I possibly could have had in terms of the reach of the book and how many people would enjoy it and be affected by it. So um, it's been really something that you couldn't plan for and, and couldn't anticipate. Really quite amazing. With um, Australian wrestling and Melbourne wrestling in particular, a large number of promoters and workers are and were heavily inspired by WCW. Um, mm. Have you found that um, you're hearing from people who weren't even old enough to have watched WCW that are really inspired by that time in wrestling? Oh, absolutely. I think you can see uh, the legacy of WCW in today's in-ring style, certainly. You think about the, the cruiserweights and how important that was in differentiating WCW from the WWF at the time. And, uh, and so many people across the globe, including in Australia, as you mentioned, were inspired by that. And uh, I think with the network um, over the past few years, of course, that spawned a whole new generation of, of people all over the world that were either too young or may not have even been alive at the time that the Nitro was airing. And uh, I think a lot of that stuff still holds up, you know, very, very well. I mean, we can talk about, and I'm sure we will later in the interview, the last couple of years of WCW. You know, I would say that was that that would be a different story. But certainly, if you look at when Nitro was really rocking and rolling, and and they were number one in the ratings and and just building incredible momentum week to week, um, a lot of those shows you can go back now and, and still be thoroughly entertained by them. And I'm, I'm not sure you can say that about necessarily every form of entertainment entertainment that's 20 plus years yeah. old so i have heard from a lot of people from australia believe it or not by email and um obviously uh you know people can go on, on amazon that's probably the best way to get the book but i i have picked up on some of that feedback that you mentioned uh personally through email as well so um so it's amazing to think you know all these years later and still wcw is, is inspiring the next generation of wrestlers when you uh, took on this project or inspired to write this book, did you realise how in depth your research would go and how many interviews, the hundreds of interviews that you did? 
did you realize the undertaking of the whole thing? Not at all. <laughs> so I started in really late 2014, um, heavily researching for the book and reaching out to various people for interviews. And I think my first interview would have been in about January of 2015. And just to give you an idea of what a monster this project became, at the time I was telling people that the publication date would be March 2016. Um, because that would have been 15 years since the last Monday Nitro. So that was the the time that I was really targeting putting together the whole book. I thought it'd be nice to coincide with um, a lot of the coverage that would organically be happening with the last Nitro. And the book didn't come out until July 2018. So basically, you know, two and a half years later. And uh, what happened as I got more and more into it, um, I realized that you know, I, I didn't just need to reach out to um, people who could represent various divisions within WCW. It was really um, important, I think, if I was going to do this, this in, an, in an honest way and try to make this as accurate as possible, to reach out to as many people um, as possible who work for WCW, but also worked on the corporate side for TBS. And I think that's probably if people are wondering, because, of course, there have been other books on WCW and documentaries and so on, if people are wondering, well, what makes this different? I would like to think that you get a much broader sense of what the relationship was between WCW and its parent company. And I think that dysfunctional, weird, crazy relationship is really the, the dominant theme that drives the narrative of the book. Um, so in total, as you mentioned, you know, I think we, we got somewhere in the region of about 120 or so interviews when you encompass both TBS and, and WCW people. And really it's their stories and their anecdotes and, and the details that came from those interviews that drive the book. Um, because I, I didn't want this to be one random person's opinion on what worked and what didn't work. I, I didn't think that would be particularly entertaining and it wouldn't be fair to the people who work there. So I really let the people who are actually there um, drive the book. No, there's no, no doubt that uh, Nitro was extremely successful for TBS one of their more uh, popular programs over the period of time that it was on. Was Ted Turner a wrestling fan or did he just enjoy wrestling due to the money it was bringing in? Well, we covered that very question in the book um, because, of course, there's been this perception, I think, especially on the part of the wrestlers who were involved with WCW over the years, that Ted himself was a huge wrestling fan. And depending on who you ask, you're probably going to get a different um, answer to that question. You know, the, I think we have a, a couple of quotes in the book from Jerry Jarrett, who, of course, is a, a very well-known, legendary uh, wrestling promoter. And, you know, he recalls um, sitting with Ted while he was editing his his shows and Ted just being, you know, intrigued with the, the whole process and and sort of being, you know, uh, enraptured by by what he was seeing. Um, you know, there were some anecdotes from from Turner people um, that actually didn't make it into the book, but I remember speaking to some people who were very close to Ted who would talk about a certain wistfulness that he would get when he would discuss wrestling because of its importance in building his broadcasting empire in the early days. So, of course, he felt um, some attachment to it, some loyalty to it. You know, there are others, uh, Bill Burke, for example, who was the head of the TBS network. Um, I remember asking him that question, and, and he said, well, you know, Ted really, above all, appreciated you know, the numbers that wrestling could garner on a consistent basis. And also, he kind of liked having something on the air 
um, that was considered perhaps by the advertising community and perhaps even society as a whole as somewhat low brown. You know, he liked having something that was doing millions of, of viewers that um, maybe some of the, the more snobby, you know, elements in society turned their, their, uh, their noses up at. And that was part of Ted's personality as well. He loved proving people wrong. He loved um, causing some controversy and, and, and putting things on the air that, you know, people didn't think would necessarily work. So um, hopefully that answers your question. I think it's, mm. it's not as simple as a yes or a no. Again, it depends on who you talk to, but hopefully that gives it a, a little bit of context. With a 120 odd interviews, um, who was the hardest person to nail down and track down? Um, yeah, I would. Well, I would say probably um, there's two candidates that come to mind. Jamie Kellner would certainly be one. Um, you know, Jamie Kellner is is someone who I think has been somewhat infamous in regards to the WCW story over the years because, you know, we've learned that he was the person who pulled the trigger, so to speak, on the cancellation of WCW from the Turner Networks. And, you know, this is the first book where you actually hear Jamie Kellner respond to some of that conjecture and some of that speculation about his uh, role in the decision-making process. But to, to track him down was, I mean, I felt like I was going to have to hire a private investigator or something. It just, you know, there's, there's not a, a database. I wish there was, but there's not a database. You can just go online and, Here's a, a full list of, you know, former WCW and Turner employees and here's, here's their phone numbers. I mean, to, to find some of these people is very difficult. And I think the other uh, person who comes to mind um, is Stu Snyder, who was, in fact, the president of the WWF um, for a short time in 2000 to 2001. He had previously worked at Turner Broadcasting, had a relationship with Brad Siegel, who was the head of, at the end of, of WCW's um, time on Turner, Brad Siegel was the head of TNT and TBS, um, and was kind of the de facto um, head person at, at WCW in the last year or so as well. Um, Stu Snyder had a, a, a previous relationship with him. And again, similar to Jamie Kellner, with respect to Stu Snyder, there had been a lot written and kind of suggested um, about his involvement in the in the cancellation or i should say uh, more so with with snyder the sale to the wwf um and so tracking him down was very very difficult but again you know in this book for the first time um you'll hear straight from the horse's mouth what he has to say about all of, all of those different rumors and everything that's been reported about him so to find those two people um and to actually get them to talk about this was uh, was a pretty difficult task just off the back of that and to keep on the theme of who was the hardest, who was the hardest person to believe? <laughs> oh boy. Well, I, I will say this. I, I think there were probably somewhere in the region of uh, six to eight people that I interviewed who, whose comments did not make it in, into the book in any form or fashion, um, just because it became pretty clear early on that, you know, there are still some hard feelings um, about certain things all of these years later. And I think there are people out there that do have access to grind, that do have, you know, personal agendas. And, and sometimes as a result of that, people make claims and statements that are just not factually true, um, such as, you know, claiming that certain things may have happened on, on shows that, you know, 
you know just by watching the shows didn't happen um, and that's that's just a minor example there were there were some more serious um, uh, claims that were thrown out there as well so I, I don't necessarily want to you know put anyone out there specifically but I will say that um, you know there, there were a handful of people that um, it became pretty clear early on there wasn't much use in, in speaking with them unfortunately but that wasn't representative of the majority of people because again as I mentioned before for those you know 120 odd people to give me their time and um, and make themselves available to talk about this you know I'm, I'm very grateful to, to all of them because without them this wouldn't be you know one hundredth of the book that it that it ended up being so um, thankfully, it balanced out with uh, with so many great people who gave that time. Sometimes we're talking to someone on the phone and or in person, and we're pinching ourselves that we're actually talking <laughs> to this person who's done so much in wrestling. You must have had a few surreal moments like that when you were interviewing people for this book. Well, I think I probably would have if if I was able to speak to Ted Turner himself. To be honest with you, I think that was the kind of elusive. Um, interview that would have I guess would have probably put the cherry on the Sunday um, but I learned quite early on um, through some Turner people that he was suffering with some health issues which I think have since gone public in the last sort of year and a half or so um, and I, I, I actually spoke on a couple of occasions to uh, to one of his assistants about that and I ended up getting a, a statement from um, from Ted Turner's people that made it into the back of the book. So I was, I was thankful to get that. But I think uh, whenever you're speaking, and this is you know, just my, my approach, I'm not saying this is right or wrong, by the way, but um, whenever you're speaking to you know, public figures, whether they be entertainers or, or whatever, um, I think you've got to try to approach it from a somewhat detached perspective, because otherwise you might sort of buy in a little too much to what someone's saying, or you might end up being a little too uh, disbelieving of what someone's saying. In other words, you know, you've got to sort of tell yourself that regardless of what you've read, what you've heard, what your personal feelings are, as much as is possible, you know, try to go into this with um, no preconceptions so that you can just give the person you're speaking to the space to, to tell their story. And then my approach was, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to put what people said in the book and then let the reader make up their mind. You know, I'm not going to quote um, a wrestler or an executive and then argue with them in, in my own book. Right. Like I'm, I'm going to, if there was a, if there was a, a meeting, let's say between several parties and each of those parties remember it differently, then, you know, what we've done in the book is we've given you the recollection of all of those parties and then, trust that the reader has the ability to make up their own mind about what happened. So I think you'll, you'll see that, you know, a few times in the book as well. Um, so of course, you know, human nature being what it is, it's, it's easier said than done to do that. Um, but I think to do a book like this, you know, you've, you've got to try to put yourself in that mindset as much as you can. Other than Ted Turner, was there anyone else that you couldn't get a hold of that you really wish uh, you could sit down to interview? I'm not so sure, actually. I, I think um, if if Jamie Kellner uh, would not have provided some comments, that that would have definitely been a, a hole in the narrative. Um, I, I think thinking about it a little bit more, uh, Brad Siegel um, was someone that unfortunately I wasn't able to get um, comments on the record from, uh, and I go into that a little bit. I think it's in 
maybe the postscript or acknowledgement somewhere near the back of the book, I, I tell that story of, of how that went down. Um, did speak to him on the phone, uh, did exchange um, communication with, with uh, some of his, some of the people that were handling his business, but uh, unfortunately that fell through. Um, but I think I was able to get enough from speaking to him um, on a background sort of basis and speaking to enough people around him that, um, you know, I was able to make up for that. But, you know, that's, if I was to be highly critical, I would, I would say it would be nice. It would, it would have been nice to have something from him on the record as well. We're talking to Guy Evans, author of Nitro, The Incredible Rise and Inevitable Collapse of Ted Turner's WCW. Guy, with the wrestlers that you spoke to, the, especially the ones that had a, a role in WWF or WWE before heading off to WCW, was there a feeling from those wrestlers that heading over to WCW was going to be a, a bit of a panacea for their wrestling career? Was something that was going to be a long-term goal for them to be a part of it? Or did they feel that this was just going to be a short-term grab for cash and that their career would go on a couple of years later? That's a really great question. I, I think, you know, what I think of when you're laying out that question is what separated WCW from an organizational standpoint from the WWF? And I would say, you know, primarily, if you look at the contract structure, therein lies a huge distinction between the two companies. You know, on one side with the WWF, you have um, a situation where wrestlers were receiving a downside guarantee, which was usually a, a modest um, amount of money. And then from there, it was theoretically, you know, up to the talent. Of course, there's only so much the talent can control, but theoretically up to them to um, increase their compensation by making themselves more valuable, by, by getting over, as they say in the wrestling business, by, you know, uh, becoming a, a, an attraction when it comes to ticket sales and, and merchandise and driving pay-per-view buy rates and so on and so forth. And, and that's why you had someone like, you know, Stone Cold Steve Austin make, you know, I believe he's on the record of saying in excess of $10 million in, uh, in, in one year in the late 90s. So you, you contrast that with WCW, where they had a guaranteed contract structure in place, which I think, you know, a lot of times gets attributed to, to Eric Bischoff. I think in some of the tellings of the WCW story, there's this notion that he put that into play, but that was something that he inherited. And I think that's, that was really a result of, you know, Turner as a company um, basically trying to ensure consistency of operations between their divisions. So in other words, if, if their quote unquote legitimate, you know, sports entities were operating under this contract structure, you can kind of see how it would make sense for them to do the same thing with WCW. Mm. But that, that kind of reveals, and this is a consistent theme in the book, a lack of understanding really about the, the unique nature of pro wrestling and what drives pro wrestlers and, and, and what happens to their, to their motivation when you take those incentives away. So to return to your question, I think because of that, um, that did create an impression that, you know, WCW is, is somewhere that you can go for a couple of years where whether you're, you know, in shape or not, whether you get over with the fans or not, whether you perform well or not, you can go there for a couple of years and you know exactly what you're going to make. And, you know, at some point you could possibly go back to Vince. And I think evidence of that mindset can be seen in the last sort of year or so of, of WCW television, where 
you saw a lot of the, the top stars in the company openly discuss on the shows the fact that they wanted to go back to New York, as wrestlers call it. They wanted to go back to Vince. You know, you, you had wrestlers who were, who were telling the fans, uh, this is how much time I have left on my contract. And, you know, I think I'm going to go and, and have one more run with the WWF. So, you know, unfortunately, I think there was that perception, not among all of the wrestlers, obviously, but certainly among some that, you know, this is possibly somewhere where you can go to grab some some quick cash, as you said, uh, and then eventually resume your career with, uh, with the WWF. It's one of those things, WCW, when it was on the rise, it had such momentum. It was like a sort of like a runaway train. But then when it started going down the hill, it equally was a runaway train that just couldn't be stopped. No, you're absolutely yeah. right. I, I, yeah, I, I think, you know, when, when wrestling promotions are doing well, you know, it seems like whoever's in charge of the company has the Midas touch, you know, whatever angle they come up with, storyline, uh, whatever new, you know, gimmick they come up with, everything just seems to turn to gold. And definitely that was the case with, with Nitro in, you know, 96, 97, 98, because there were some things that on the surface you wouldn't think would have worked, but because the property as a whole was so hot, um, I think it was kind of like the, you know, the rising tide philosophy, just um, the, the sheer momentum, as you said, and, and the excitement around the program just elevated everything and, and made people that in a different time maybe wouldn't have been, um, you know, considered that special, um, you know, really stand out just because they were a consistent performer on the show. You know, conversely, once WCW um, got itself into a situation where it wasn't creating any new fans and all of the new interest in wrestling was being driven by the direction that the WWF was going in. And obviously, you know, this is kind of a sidebar, but you know, WCW, for various reasons, as its existence as a Turner property, really couldn't go in that kind of risque direction. But that's, that, that's besides the point. But once... WCW lost um, the momentum and once it wasn't creating those new fans and, and eventually once its existing audience started to migrate over to the competition, um, if you remember, there were just so many restarts and uh, reboots and you know, every three months we're going to blow everything up, we're going to start again, you know, they, they're telling the audience just forget about everything that you've seen up to this point, none of that matters, we're going to strip the belts, we're going we're gonna to go in a completely different direction. And, uh, and, and as a result, um, you know, those last, I would say those last 18 months, um, it was just really hard to get any continuity and any idea of, of, uh, of where the company was going. And I think there was a hope that, you know, with one great show, we can turn it around. Um, you know, we can, we can turn these numbers around. We can be number one again. Um, and there, there probably wasn't a recognition until the very end or close to the end that this was going to be a long-term process. You know, if you listen to, you can, you can still find online some interviews with, with Eric Bischoff, for example, uh, right at the time that Fusion apparently um, purchased WCW in, in January of 2001. And I think you can, you can hear a recognition, you know, at that point that this is something that's going to take um, a couple of years, right? This is something that's going to be a long-term build for us to get back in contention with, the WWF, but um, up until that point, as I say, it was just let's just throw everything we can at the wall. Let's try to turn this around in in one week, and if that doesn't work, we'll basically uh, be like Will Smith in Men in Black. We'll we'll hold up the uh, 
what was it, the neuralizer? You know, we're gonna we're gonna convince our audience that none of that happened, then we're gonna start again. So it was it was just uh, kind of kind of chaotic. You, you mentioned Eric it's, Bischoff um, and really. Oh, sorry. Uh, you mentioned Eric Bischoff. He um he does cop a lot of the the blame from online that he killed WCW, but you're very fair in the book towards him and he has championed your book, which is also sort of strange because you, you uh, show a lot of his uh, mistakes along the way. What was the relationship like with Eric while interviewing and then after the book got released? Yes. Another great question. Uh, You know, I remember when I spoke to Eric Bischoff, it was over the course of a couple of separate days. And I think we probably spoke for about four and a half, five hours in total and really, covered a lot of topics that I think he hasn't necessarily been asked about before. And I, I remember that he was very open to doing the interview because if I recall correctly, I sent him, you know, quite a lengthy pitch um, where I was explaining, you know, the, the purpose of the project and why I wanted to speak to him. And I felt that it would be, you know, intellectually dishonest of me and just poor form generally, if I'm going to write a book, and touch on his tenure with WCW, which of course was so important, and not actually speak to him. And, you know, I just didn't think that was obviously the, the, the way to go, and I think he appreciated that. Um, but you know, once the book came out, um, it had been, been some time really since I had spoken to him, and I had no idea how he was going to respond. And the first time I heard him talk about it was when everyone else did, which was on his podcast. And I was um, you know, obviously very grateful and also surprised that he was able to separate, I think, some of the more difficult portions of the book to read and digest from his wider analysis of the book, which I actually think is quite a rare trait because if you, if you think about it, if, if you were written about in a book that was covering an organization that you had worked for before, and there was really any content in that book that sort of was embarrassing to you or didn't uh, reflect in a, in a positive way towards you, I think is a natural human tendency to say, well, that whole thing is is BS. You know, this this author obviously has an axe to grind. I wouldn't believe a word of it. And he could have very easily said that, you know, and a lot of people as a result probably wouldn't have checked out the book. So, you know, in my communication to him since, um, because, you know, we've we've had the chance to, uh, to meet a couple of times at uh, Conrad Thompson's uh, StarCast events, uh, we did a panel actually in in Las Vegas, which was uh, in part centered around the book last year, which was which was a great a great thing. Um, and and in those communications with him, I've expressed that to him that I think it's very commendable that he's been able to keep that perspective. Um, because again, I I don't think that's that's necessarily the way that everyone would react to something like this. Um, so you know, hopefully that answers your question. I mean, really, I'm just you know as surprised and pleased as anyone else that, you know, he's been able to, to hold that view of the book. A two part question for you, Guy, have you been on Eric's podcast? Yeah, actually we did, we did do a, uh, a show. I mentioned the, um, the panel in uh, Las Vegas, which would have been uh, Memorial day weekend last year. I think if you go in the archives, uh, probably a week before that. So third week of May or so, um, Eric, uh, Conrad and I, we did about an hour talking about the book. So um, people can check that out. And the unprecedented amount of access you had to company records, documents, 
and materials pertaining to WCW. Uh, amazing what you got, and I'm sure amazing what you read. Absolutely, and and that's uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because again, you know, people might be thinking with the book, um, okay, you know, did the did did this person print, you know, almost everything that they heard on the other end of the phone or in person? And the answer to that is no, because you know, one of the ways I was able to ascertain the accuracy of a particular claim or, or a set of claims was by having access to a lot of company materials that really had been under lock and key since WCW was sold. Um, and uh, with some of them, I can't necessarily talk about how I came across those things, but um, <laughs> you know, I, I was able to, I was able to cross-reference, you know, a lot of those claims that I was hearing. So if someone said, you know, in 1995, uh, WCW made this much in, in, in terms of profit, you know, I was able to reach into my drawer and pull out WCW's financial statement from 1995 and, you know, see if this person is, you know, at least in the ballpark of being accurate or if they're just pulling this out of, you know, you know where. So that was really helpful in, uh, in having some objective data to support a lot of the, uh, a lot of the things coming out of the interviews. Now, as a, uh, well, she's on mute and talking. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, as a wrestling book uh, collector, um, is there any plans to release a hardcover of the book? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, yes, is the answer. I, I wish I could give you an accurate timeline, um, but I would say hopefully in the next year or so, you know, we'll have some news on that. Um, Again, just returning to your original question at the beginning of the interview, um, none of the response to this book was in any way anticipated. So, you know, when I first put it out, I thought, okay, there's going to be a small handful of people who are going to read it. I'll probably get some emails for a week or two and then just, you know, write about something else. And um, it's obviously become clear after all this time that this is something that I think people are going to read forever. Um, and so definitely it needs a, a hardcover and, as I say, hopefully in the next year or so, I can give you more on that. But thanks for asking. No, yeah, that, that's what I'm looking forward to because I got the paperback when it first originally came out, and recently I've picked up the audio book as well. Um, oh, thank what was you. The, so you've got a lot of Lyle's money. Uh, yeah, a lot of my money. And <laughs> nice one. When the, when the hardcover comes out, you'll get more of my money. What was the beautiful the uh, audio book recording experience like? Yeah, the goes for 17 hours so that's how comprehensive this book is um what was that whole experience like yeah so the, the book is about 600 pages as you know lyle and the uh the audio book over 17 hours um what was it like i would probably say hell in a word um <laughs> just to actually sit down and record the thing but obviously to to piece it together i'm, I'm sure as you guys know putting together your podcast the editing of anything is usually the most time-consuming part of the process, uh, and then you know you, you you chop something up and put it together and listen to a 17-hour product, and then realize you know there's there's one thing one thing in there that you needed to change. <laughs> so uh, it, it is you know you know the nine-hour and four-minute mark. You know there's something I have to take out. So um, it was a lot of work, but um, you know I was really happy that we were able to get it on Audible. 
and it's it's doing really well all over the world since it came out i think in uh, mid-april so if people go on audible and just type in nitro uh, or nitro wcw i'm sure it'll pop up and it's another way as you said that they're liable to uh, to enjoy the book because it's quite a lengthy one I do appreciate you saying uh, that we edit this show, but um, anyone who's yeah. ever listened to this show knows that we leave in all of Tony's no, I, mistakes. I was under the impression this was a professional podcast, guys. You're, you're shattering, my, you uh, shattering yeah. my illusions of what's going on here. <laughs> we um, love look, Tony, got your name, Tony got your yeah. name right, and it's the first That's time in about six weeks Thanks. he's gotten the guest's name right. <laughs> That's the first time for everything, eh? Yeah. I was going to call you Evo, but I thought that might have been too informal. Hey, I've been called worse, so don't worry about it. <laughs> um, how It's really hard with the modern wrestling fans to explain just how popular um, wrestling was in 1997, 1998. Mm-hmm. Um, in, how would you explain to a modern wrestling fan yeah, just how big WCW and even at the time WWE was? I think the word that comes to mind is ubiquitous. You know, wrestling was ubiquitous at that time. I think everyone, uh, you know, obviously myself, I grew up on the other side of the pond, so to speak, in the UK, but it was a a huge mainstream thing for us as well. And everyone had an awareness of wrestling. You know, you may not have been an ardent follower of it. You may not have watched the shows every single week or even watched the shows at all. But if someone was to mention to you, you know, Stone Cold or The Rock or the NWO, um, you know, I would say the large majority of people would have some kind of an idea that, you know, wrestling had become cool. It was something that was crossing over into other forms of entertainment. It was something that was involving, you know, prominent people from the sports world and, and, and celebrities and so on. You know, of course, a lot of wrestlers and people involved in the business back then have just so many anecdotal stories about, you know, going into a shopping mall and just seeing swarms of stone cold shirts and NWO shirts. And um, it was really something that that crossed over and became a part of pop culture. And um, keep in mind, this is at a time where the media landscape was much, much less uh, fragmented than it is today, you know, because of the changes in technology and just the proliferation of entertainment generally you know people have many more options of what to do to occupy their time and increasingly i think it seems like wrestling is becoming something that a lot of people digest on an individual basis you know they might be you know watching the latest you know independent shows on their laptop or whatever and it's not quite the same experience as um back then when it was it was much more of a communal thing it was much more of a, a, a spectacle that could appeal to, as they say, the entire couch. So if you were watching the shows with your family, like depending on um, who's in the room with you, uh, you know, everyone would find something about it, I would dare say, that they could find somewhat entertaining. If, if Ric Flair is in the rain with Mean Gene ranting and raving and stripping to his boxer shorts, like if, if you're, if you're in, a, in a room, you know, a family of, of six, um, probably everyone's going to find something about that that they can latch on to. Nowadays, I think wrestling, again, some of this owes to the uh, the fragmentation of, of media, but I think it's much, much harder now for um, wrestling promotions to, to, to tap into um, the mass audience or the, the casual fans, as people say. Uh, it's just not, it, again, my, this is my point of view here. You guys may disagree, but I feel like 
it's not as accessible to the average viewer. It seems like you need to have much more uh, product knowledge. You need to know a little bit more about the, the characters. I think the characters, and it may be different in Australia, I don't know, I'm kind of talking about American wrestling here, but I think the characters are less well-defined. Um, I think, you know, the stories are not necessarily as engrossing as some of the, the stories that we grew up on. So of course it's a matter of personal taste. And, you know, if you're a fan of, uh, you know, a lot of people who are fans of modern wrestling, you know, may feel like this is the uh, sort of the apex of the business right now. But I think that there is a, a correlation um, between the, the type of wrestling that was being presented back then and the mass audience that it was able to reach. You know, I think that if you were to put on, let's put it this way, if, if WCW and WWF were presenting a lot of what we see now back then, um, there's no way that Nitro and Raw would be doing, you know, 5 million viewers each on a Monday night. So um, it, it was, you know, it, a lot of it was timing. A lot of it was a result of what was happening across the rest of the culture. But, um, you know, as I say, just, just wrestling for that, that time was just a huge, huge mainstream thing and, and part of pop culture in a way that I don't think, you know, should be brushed aside and, and, and shouldn't be forgotten. Oh, one thing that still fascinates me to this day is the relationship between Hulk Hogan and Randy Macho Man Savage and mm. how that was the ups and downs of it, I suppose. Was that uh, brought up much in discussion? Is there much you can share with us as to how that, how downhill that went during that period? No, I wish, I wish there was more I could say about that. I think it's touched on briefly in the book where we go into the famous Hulk Hogan heel turn. Of course, you know, he delivered the, uh, his patented uh, leg drop to the Macho Man in a, in a moment that, mm. you know, probably uh, if you were to think of the classic WCW moments, that would probably be, I would say, if, if it's not your number one, it's probably your top three. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's when, I, when I think about your question, it's, it's sad to reflect on, you know, the fact that unfortunately he isn't here. You know, Roddy Piper during the course of this book unfortunately passed away. Dusty Rhodes passed away uh, when I was in the very early stages of doing it. I would have loved to incorporate some of those voices into the discussion. Um, you know, it's it just very unfortunate that they're not around. Um, you know, I, I, from what, from what I have heard from, from what it's, for what it's worth, um, because this did come up in some of the interviews, you know, I know that there was some kind of reconciliation, um, before the Macho Man passed away. I think, you know, Hulk has talked about that in various interviews mm. that they did have a, a brief sort of, um, uh, they sort of bumped into each other, I think at the doctor's office or something like that, you know, shortly before he passed away. And, you know, I, I know that from talking to people, that's a story that, um, most people tend to believe, you know, is, is true. So I think for people who grew up on, you know, Hogan and, and Macho Man and have fond memories of their childhood, at least you can kind of hold on to the fact that, you know, apparently there was some kind of mending of fences, you know, right before, uh, right before he unfortunately passed. Yeah, Savage. Uh, I was a Savage guy from a very young age. So uh, that one definitely hit me a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. Now we're seeing wrestling back on TNT at the moment. Is that something that you ever thought you would see? No, but I, I probably wasn't as surprised as some people just because TNT at this stage, it is TNT, but almost in name only. Um, you know, all of the people who were involved with the decision 
to take WCW off the air were gone within two years of WCW being sold. You know, it's a, it's a completely different company today. Um, you know, they don't even refer to the company um, as Turner anymore. I'm not sure if, if you guys picked up on that story, but they're, they're now calling it Warner Media. Mm. And, uh, you know, a um, sort of very solemn and somber day happened, I believe it was last November. I remember hearing about this from some Turner people where they actually took down the Turner sign in Atlanta and replaced it with uh, Warner Media, which a lot of people you know, who've been involved in the company for decades were, were quite upset by. Um, but, but yes, it's, you know, it's TNT, but it's a completely different um, bunch of people running it now. I think it's been fairly well documented that, you know, Tony Khan has a personal relationship with the head of the TNT network. And I dare say that that plus, you know, of course, his involvement in uh, professional sports and, and being part of a billionaire family probably had a, a little bit to do with that opportunity coming about. Um, and I suppose, you know, you can surmise that there were only a certain number of uh, networks that wrestling potentially could end up on again. Um, and, you know, as we look at it now, obviously throwing the, the COVID numbers out the window, because that's not particularly fair, but I think, you know, AEW has settled around sort of 750,000 viewers or so, and certainly for the health of the wrestling business and the viability of competitive companies moving forward you know i would certainly like to see that number go up in in the next uh, couple of years because um you know as as we all know you know it's fairly obvious to see that the wwe has you know rested on its on its laurels creatively for quite some time and uh, it would just be so great you know for everyone involved in wrestling if you really had a a competitive situation but that may not be what aw is even aiming at you know, they may be very much content with being a profitable, profitable wrestling company and cultivating their own audience. But selfishly, I would like to see, uh, we're never going to get a return to the Monday Night Wars, but, you know, something approximating that would be uh, a, a welcome sight. Do you see any similarities between WWE of the last three to four years to um, WCW towards the end? Uh, I, I would say... Uh, it's an interesting question. I mean, I'm sure, you know, there are many things you could say that have happened on screen that probably rival some of the kookiness and craziness of uh, WCW in the year 2000, for example. But I think the, the companies are in two very diff different positions. I mean, WCW at that time was really operating from a place of desperation. You know, they were desperately trying to regain the audience. And as I said before, if possible, in one week, you know, the, the, the idea was if we can just, if we can just, uh, you know, put three cage matches on, if we can have, you know, uh, 27 different, different run-ins on the show, 10 different heel turns, we'll change the, the world title belt three times and we'll do a 6.0 and we'll beat Raw and, you know, we'll be off to the races. Whereas with the WWE today, I think, personally, I think what's happened is they have a, a, a buffer or a, a margin of error that actually wasn't possible back then because of how the economics of, of wrestling have changed. So in other words, if you look at the TV rights fees that wrestling commands today, that wasn't even a thought in anyone's mind in the late 90s that that could ever happen. So WWE has incredible uh, you know, uh, deals in place with 
for example, you know, Fox, we've heard figures in excess of a billion dollars over a number of, of various years. So that, that obviously, you know, builds in, um, you know, quite, quite a big margin of error. You know, they, they don't need to rely on uh, their monthly pay-per-views to, to keep the company going. Um, you, you add that with the network. Obviously, there's a, a, a huge number of people that forevermore will be paying to access the old shows and the current content on the network. So that's a huge revenue stream that didn't exist before. And the Saudi money. You know, WWE has received uh, a huge injection of, of money from, from markets uh, such as Saudi Arabia that, um, that didn't happen anywhere near to that extent anyway before. So I think you, you add that all up. And what I'm getting at is that WWE is generating uh, huge uh, sums, of, uh, sums of money um, in a way that is not exactly tied to the wrestling product if that makes sense right it's it's not the the old concept of you know we've got to um find two two guys that the fans really care about and we've got to make sure that we have incredibly compelling programming and we're going to build to wrestlemania or we're going to build to the royal rumble or survivor series or whatever you know that's that's a an antiquated way of thinking about wrestling now i think as long as they are um bringing in their core audience and as long as their network subs stay somewhere around where they've been um, and as long as those those tv deals continue to roll in i think again it's human nature to maybe take your foot off the gas pedal a little bit um, you know i think there have been some former wwe people in the last few years that have talked about you know what really gets celebrated inside that company are the business deals you know that's that's a, a bigger deal uh you know so to speak and rightfully so, you could argue, than you know, how good WrestleMania was or, or how good the last episode of, of SmackDown was or whatever. So um, I think you know, creatively, you can maybe draw some parallels, but um, the companies are in, in such, uh, such a different position. And that's really why, personally, I would love someone to come along and directly challenge the WWE because um, you know, given, given those sources of revenue that I talked about, I think that's going to be the only thing that makes them really really focus on their creative uh, on-screen product. Yeah, 99 out of uh, 100 wrestling organisations around the world rely on bums on seats, not the WWE. Correct, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Mm. I just want to ask about your own wrestling uh, fandom. What was it like uh, in Wales at the time? When was that early mornings trying to watch... Raw or Nitro live, or taping one and watching one live like the rest of us. Yeah, well, I was lucky that I had a, a brother who lived in the states at the time, so I kind of had a um, a connection to it that way. And we used to get Nitro and Thunder on TNT Europe, um, and they they used to show them on the same station, of course, in the US. You know, Thunder was TBS, Nitro was TNT, but we would get um, we would get both shows, and then. I think you guys had WCW Worldwide. Is that right? Um, was that the, the had, show in Australia? We had Nitro um, live. Yeah. Oh, not live. Yeah. We had it. It would air Friday from Monday's episode. Gotcha. So, because um, because we had TNT. Gotcha. So we had uh, there was another show that aired on terrestrial television actually, um, WCW Worldwide, which was kind of a a compilation of um, you know nitro thunder saturday night and they would kind of throw it all in into one and 
that sort of became an infamous um, show in the UK. It sort of gained a bit of a cult following because it would be weeks behind, and that's probably being generous, by the time you actually saw the, the footage. And um, you'd have so many production gaffes and, and editing miscues and things like that. I remember one time Larry Zabisco was on commentary while Larry Zabisco ran to the ring. So that was uh, <laughs> that was uh, one of the, the more funny episodes that I remember where, you know, obviously uh, they probably put him in the studio and, and told him you have to do some color commentary on this episode and, and didn't realize he was doing a run-in in that match from Nitro. So you'd have sort of crazy stuff like that happen. And, you know, we had a, um, there was a, a couple of tours of the UK, one actually before Nitro got started and one in the year 2000, the latter of which was sort of roundly um, received as a, as a, disa a disaster. Um, I remember going to one of those shows and, you know, they, they advertised on the event program, you know, you're going to get all of the top stars, whether it be, you know, Kevin Nash or Sting or, you know, Hulk Hogan, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, I think uh, the main event was was Ric Flair and Kurt Hennig, which don't get me wrong, is, a, you know, a great match. But I remember the crowd was sort of expecting, you know, the sort of the, the creme de la creme, like a six-man tag with the, the six biggest people in the company. So um, the rest of that tour sort of followed suit um, and uh, became a little bit of a debacle, I think, by the time they got to the last night. So, you know, through uh, what was on TV and through, as I say, you know, my brother being in the States and through tape trading and obviously following it online, that that's kind of how I, I kept up with it um, back then. And when WCW went away, that was really the extent of my interest in, in wrestling for quite some time. And it wasn't until years later that I really uh, started going back and still had uh, a lot of those shows on trusty VHS and started thinking about those days and that was sort of the genesis for uh, for writing the book. An Englishman in New York. Sounds like a good name for a song. Don't uh, call him an Englishman. Well, well, a Welshman. Oh, a Welshman, a Welshman, sorry, I should say. All right, my apologies. <laughs> well, you well, got his name right at the start. You just oh, no, I had to mess something up. Uh, what took you <laughs> to the Big Apple, Guy? Oh, it's a great, it's a great question. Uh, well, work primarily. Um, you know, I had the opportunity to come out here and, and work in, uh, what was it now, 2011? and then uh, sort of plan to be here for a period of time and come back. But, you know, as, as many people do, you know, ended up meeting a girl and, uh, you know, that was, uh, that was all she wrote. And now we have, uh, have a son who was born here and, um, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll have more to come. And, you know, as I say, I've been here for nearly a decade now and, and uh, don't plan on, on going back. Although I, I do miss the UK and miss family, obviously, very much, but um, certainly uh, enjoy being here as well. We, we have a running joke here on the podcast. How early on into the relationship did you confess your wrestling fandom? <laughs> oh, man. I don't remember. Probably uh, probably came up fairly early on um, because <laughs> uh, I, I think if I think about it, I probably was kicking around the idea for doing something. I, I actually... You've got me thinking about something that I haven't thought about in a long time, which was originally, I remember thinking it would be it would be interesting just to compile a lot of recollections that people have already or had already provided about WCW, you know, into one format. So I thought, you know, it'd be nice if someone just kind of summed up, you know, everything that's in the DVDs and the books and the newsletters and so on and 
maybe that would kind of be an interesting thing. And I remember thinking about that back then, um, but then obviously moved in favor of, of starting from scratch and doing primary research. But, um, but yeah, I, uh, you know, for me personally, I, I wish I was more of a fan today because, you know, as I say, you know, I, I know that things have to change and evolve over time, but I would love to see more of a focus on characters and storylines again, um, just to make the, the matches a little bit more meaningful. Um, you know, I, I, I'm sort of one of those fans that believes that the matches is only as important and interesting as the strength of the characters and the story that's, that's kind of a play. Um, and I think a lot of stuff today tends to sort of be a little bit dissociated from that. So I was very excited when I heard about AEW because I thought this might be a, you know, a resurgence for a lot of people like me to get back involved. So, but, uh, but you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, I don't know if you're across it, but someone on Twitter has started an account um, called What Will Mongo Do Next? Yeah, I've heard about that. <laughs> um, and it is a gift. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Mongo is the, he is the worst wrestler I've ever well, seen. Well, I'm sure uh, there's no shortage of material for whoever's running that account. I mean, uh, they could probably plug in any random uh, Mongo match and they'll, they'll definitely find something. <laughs> Poor old Mongo. Even his commentary. Oh, oh yeah, very popular. Uh, very very popular among the wrestlers, though, from what I uh, from what I understand, Mongo. So that that may explain explain some things. <laughs> a final one for you, guy. What are you working on at the moment? Yeah, so um, you know, since the Nitro book came out, um, I have been working on a follow up, uh, and I'm about a year and a half into that now. And um, so you know, five I, years to go. Uh, yeah, five, five, ten, <laughs> maybe 15, 15 years to go. Um, I, what I'm interested in doing is trying to sort of pick up the story from um, the WCW sale and look at what happened to the wrestling business and a lot of people involved in it since that time because that's quite a fascinating mm. story in itself just because it touches on so many aspects of you know what's happened to our entertainment culture, what's happened to technology um what's happened to media i think there's a lot of things you can drag into that story so uh one thing that i'm determined to do is try to make this you know on a on a similar level uh to the nitro book i don't just want to kind of come out with something for the sake of it so you know you may not be far off with your your prediction there it's probably going to take a while but you know, <laughs> if, if i'm going to ask uh if i'm going to ask someone to um you know spend the time and spend their money to to, to buy something i want to make sure it's something you can go back and hopefully read multiple times and really learn a lot of new stuff from so um hopefully when that happens you know you guys will bring me back on and, and we can talk about it then i have no doubt we will and i want to be there the next time you pitch a book because i don't know how you get an advance on something where you say it's going to be one hundred eighty thousand words and it's going to take me 10 years <laughs> <laughs> give me fifty thousand to start off that'd be great <laughs> well when you when you put it like that <laughs> hey guy congratulations uh it's a great read if you haven't read it yet folks get out there and do it the book is called nitro the incredible rise and inevitable collapse of ted turner's wcw and take your time reading it because the uh the sequel comes out in about five years time so <laughs> might be bad. hey guy thank you so much for your time really do appreciate it we will Bring you on if we're uh, still podcasting in that many years. 
let's hope so. Thanks so much, guys. It's been fun. Thank you very Guy much. Evans. Thank you. Guy Evans joining us here on the Turnbuckle. Second segment of the show this week, and we come back with the WCW Thunder theme. Uh, Guy Evans, what a great chat. I think it went a little bit longer than I expected it would, but it was inevitable that it was going to because the guy was just a really good talker. Um, yeah, he's a really nice guy. I really enjoyed our time, and he was very uh, generous with his time. So, um, geez, how bad that WCW Thunder theme was as bad as what the show was. Yeah. <laughs> It shows how much effort they put into the theme of uh, the creative they're going to put into the show uh, later on. But no, uh, great book. Highly recommend. Uh, go out and get it. Um, it's got all the craziness of uh, the show going downhill, which is always fun, and the business side of it. You know, having all that uh, documentation from the uh, inside the Turner offices and stuff like that. It's uh, yeah. And it's 220, 220 interviews. Yeah. That, yeah. Hours um, and hours have gone into this. Well, it's a passion project. He's a wrestling fan. And um, our podcast has been going for three years and we haven't done anywhere near that many. <laughs> no, but we've yeah. done. No, well, yeah, we have. No, no, it's only, no, three years is only like one a week. Yeah, you're right. It's only yeah, <laughs> yeah. And he, he's sitting down with Eric Bischoff for four hours at, at a time, not, you know, 26 not... minutes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's... And Eric um, remembers his name. Not so much with us. <laughs> uh, he, yeah, you never know with Eric. He might be just saying, how you going, guy? And just get lucky. <laughs> I'm, not your, I'm not your friend, guy. I bet you he doesn't call him Evo. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so, Tony. I don't be only you. <laughs> All right, let's get into the show. AEW Fighter Fest. What the hell is that about? <laughs> uh, it's, well, it's what they're promoting. They're big upcoming shows, which are going to be on their, well, taking place during Wednesday Night Dynamite instead of a normal pay-per-view over the this week and next week. Um, they're building up to some decent matches. Um yeah. Orange Cassidy versus Christopher Jerryovsky. Love yes. Orange County. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's uh that's next week. Um you know, you got Moxley versus Cage next week, which I think um WWE are trying their hardest to get everyone that's around Moxley COVID so he can't um <laughs> get to that match. Um hopefully he has his fourteen day iso- uh, isolation before that title match but you know this but week don't talk to me about isolation no tony there's no lockdown in australia anymore mate uh there is there in is. it's great the only place there in is australia. in my there is in my suburb lyle i've got another month well see you got to um, be more you got to be more diligent like my uh, tony and and myself uh obviously you're a little bit looser around the uh footscray area but you know what about um, my poor next door neighbours that moved in and um, last weekend, and now they're on lockdown? <laughs> well, it's a good chance to get to know the neighbours. Great way to get to know the neighbours. Exactly. No, it's not. You can't invite them over. Ah, oh, so you can't even put the bowl on the coffee table. 
Look, I've got oh. till midnight tomorrow. <laughs> midnight. So you're just going to go all out and spread as much COVID as you can? I'm encouraging everyone in the affected suburbs to get out and about for 24 hours and then get everyone on lockdown with us. Yeah, well, the way we I'll are tell going... What I, might do. I, I'm, I might have to give Pitbull a call. Uh, no consent, my friend. No hey, uh, hey, oh, speak. shit, I dropped my phone. <laughs> Technical difficulties. So, my Lord. Uh, yeah, back one to week, five, one week off the show and it goes to crap. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. Uh, speaking Time of lockdown, boys, there's some uh, WWE talent that's coming out saying that... Uh, hey, I'm still talking about AEW. Oh, okay. talk yeah, about AEW. We're talking, talking about AEW. Hurry up. God. Chris Jericho's um, new gimmick, he looks like your friend's divorced mum that's gone through a midlife crisis. She's the one who lets lets you all drink around the house. Yeah, definitely. That's Jericho's (laughs) new gimmick. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well... Yeah, back to Fighter Fist, uh, like you you wanted, Tony. Uh, We got Cody versus... Is it Jake? Jake Hager? Jake the Snake. In there. Jake the, yeah, well, Jake the Snake should be there. Which is sort of weird. He's, I don't think he'd, uh, he should be travelling at the miniature. He's right in that um, the wheelhouse of vulnerability with uh, COVID. But, you know, the TNT title, which has been... Um, if WWE are wheeling out Ric Flair in the middle of a crisis, <laughs> I got him in trouble. <laughs> for Jake, Jake the Snake... Flair died uh, like three times the other year. Yeah, well, yeah, it wasn't even that long ago. I was going to say, yeah, Jake is uh, with his checkered past and Ric Flair's been closer to death than he has. Um, yeah, it's crazy. Definitely crazy out there. Um, obviously, it can't be a pay-per-view because there's no fans. So we're just going to get it on two well, consecutive weeks pay- on TV. Or Double or Nothing was a pay-per-view and they had no fans. Yeah. I'm surprised it's not a pay Not a. I'm surprised it's not a pay-per-view. Yeah, no, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they, maybe they just they can't fill TV time either, and then do a pay per view as well. Um, yeah, not everyone can get there at the minute, I guess. Uh, and of course, in a classic case of um, programming against the opposition, WWE <laughs> running over the next two weekends in NXT. Yeah, it's Great um, American Bash. Yeah, is uh, Eric Bischoff still with WWE, is he? <laughs> no. Yeah, very. What a coincidence. I haven't seen him around catering for a while. No, no. Well, you know, and they're doing limited commercials as well, so they're going to... i tell you what. Sasha Banks versus Io Shirai. Two of my absolute, probably, favourite wrestlers to watch in the world. Yeah. That is, That match alone has got me... Really, really excited to watch that show. Yeah, well, that that's on that's on this week. That that probably almost that that would main event this week's show. I think it probably would. Yeah, yeah, and then um, yeah, the week after you got Cole and Keith Lee for the uh, the two titles, the North American and the NXT title. Winner takes all match. Um, yeah, I think yeah. Um, the fans are the winners for the next two weeks. I know that. Look, it's probably a little bit petty to run Great American Bash, which was Cody's dad's invention up against Fighter Festival. But um, honestly, it's going to be 
um, over the next two weeks, eight hours of really good wrestling that we're going to get to watch. And for the first time in quite a while, I'm actually excited to watch something. Yeah. But isn't this what we wanted? Yeah. For the nostalgic us, you know, wrestling fans, the older people that live through the Monday Night Wars, isn't this what we wanted? If they're fighting each other, yeah, I don't care. We're watching it on delay anyway, being in Australia most of the time. We're not going to be home while it's live. Um, So I'm watching it on delay and it creates better product on both sides. I'm more than happy. Hmm. They're the winners. You want to bring me in here? Yeah, you can Tony, talk yeah. whenever you want, Tony. Uh, so you've jumped the WWE COVID. You went to Great American Bash, yeah? Because that's the order it should have gone in. Lyle fucked up okay. the run sheet. Yeah, you uh, know WWE COVID. We've got wrestlers saying that WWE have handled it extremely poorly over the last couple of months. Well, most of them have got it, haven't they? <laughs> you have, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, obviously not, not, um, not testing properly. Uh, and just trying to avoid. You'd or... reckon with the amount of people in America that have got COVID nineteen, one's going to be a wrestler with WWE. Well, I mean, especially Florida now is pretty. Florida's worse than West Footscray, so just uh, easy. Easy. Just... <laughs> we got zero cases in West Footscray. We're locked down. I'm not. I'm not over it. Not too yeah, sure. Yeah. I enjoy the beaches of West Footscray. Um, we don't have a beach. We've got really nice cafes, though. Yeah, that's a good point. That you can't go to? I can go tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, New Japan Cup. My favourite wrestler has been eliminated. Yeah, of course, that's Zack Sabre Jones. I'm actually... <laughs> I'm actually <laughs> junior, sorry. Did I say Jones? Junior. <laughs> Oh, well, she's just dropped his phone again. I'm actually... Uh... <laughs> so good night, Jack Sabre-Jones. Zach Sabre-Jones. Jonesy. You know we're not going to be able to call you anything else going forward now. That's Jonesy. Uh, I'm actually getting a little bit of a liking for Lance Archer. <laughs> He's not in the tournament. I know, but I'm just saying, I've, actually, I've watched a couple of uh, YouTube videos. And he, uh, yeah. he doesn't like Zach and his vegan ways. Well, you better get into some AEW because you'll be able to watch him there. Yeah, he's uh, he's in AEW and New Japan. <laughs> but obviously he can't fly overseas at the minute, Tony, so he's not in uh, this year's G1. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but yeah. you're right, he doesn't like Jonesy. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to call him anything else now. <laughs> Is he related to special delivery? Special delivery. He is now. (laughs) His uncle Dean played cricket for a while. That's it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. so you would have been disappointed, Tony, him losing the COVID. It was a great match, though. Mortified. He put up a fight. I was upset because I tipped tipped Jonesy to win that match. Yeah. Well, see, your bracket is all the way out. Well, I mean... I haven't watched any of the tournament and I'm still equal with you on tips. So I'm questioning you at the moment. I just picked my favourites. That's it. I don't, I don't, is, that I don't you, it. is that why you picked three or four that weren't in the tournament? Yeah. That's like you right, had Robbie man. Eagles as your answer for two. Well, he should have been in it. He should have been in the Super Juniors. He would have been in it. I would have been there. 
this COVID. Bloody Westfoot's grade ruining my international travel plans. <laughs> is, Zach, okay. is Zach Sabre Jr. only in the Super Juniors because he's a junior? That's not the Super Juniors. <laughs> it's the New Japan Cup. I don't know no, why. No, no, but is he in the Super, Super juniors. juniors? No. No. But he no, should be. No. He's too well, big. He's too tall. He probably weighs Super Junior weight. He's very lean. He's very tall. um, Yeah. It's the G1, Tony. So it's heavyweights and juniors this year because obviously the... uh, the It's the New Japan Cup. New New Japan Japan Cup, Cup. sorry. Yeah, New Japan Cup. Single elimination. God, we're going to get so many messages today. Oh, Lyle's meant to be the expert on New Japan and he's... I'm he's, been to- he's been Tokyo the whole thing. I'm definitely, I'm definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> no, but no, that's all right, Tony. We don't expect you to be. Uh, but it comes back uh, Wednesday, Wednesday and Thursday night this week. Some really, really good matches: Okada <laughs> versus Ishimori. I can't take it seriously. All I'm thinking about is Zack Sabre Jones. <laughs> I'm disappointed. He's not. He's not. He can't win it. Imagine him winning it. Let's face it. When he gets signed by when he gets signed by WWE, they're going to repackage him as that anyway. So <laughs> Tony knows he's wrestling eventually in the long run. Uh, yeah. So it's been it's been good to have uh, New Japan back. That's for sure, Tony. Yeah, great, uh, fantastic. Weird, weird time of wrestling with no fans. It certainly is. If you have got an idea for a podcast, contact my podcast house or on the Turbuckle through our Facebook pages. And we'll help you get on air. Thanks for joining us, boys, next week. Next week, we've got um, Star of Mad as Hell and one of the comedians involved with WrestleBrainia, um, Tosh Greenslade, mm. joining us, who's a big New Japan fan. So you'll be able to talk about um, Zack Sabre Jones with him, Tony. Well, that's if he talks to me after I totally abolish his name. <laughs> You'll probably call it Tosh. What is it, Josh? Tosh. Tosh. <laughs> All right. You'll probably call him Daniel Tosh or something. I'm stuffed. Yeah. I might let you do the intro next week. You probably should every week. <laughs> no, we should never. <laughs> you should always do it, Tony. <laughs> catch you next week. Right. Thanks for joining See us, you, uh... folks. We'll catch you again right here on the turnbuckle.